0: Welcome to the Beyond the Sermon podcast, where we take your questions from Sunday's teachings in order to form a dialogue about the scriptures and what God is teaching each and every one of us. Well, welcome back to the Beyond the Sermon podcast. Today is actually Monday. Uh, September twenty sixth. We're recording this uh, early, early Monday morning here, first thing Monday morning. And um, instead of on Sunday, normally we record on Sundays right after second service. Take the questions fresh there. Um, as we've uh, as we've started the fall ministry season here, we've had several things on sunday afternoons for the last 3 sundays and so uh, getting caught up on recording here for the beyond the sermon podcast but today we're going to take we're going to take the questions from yesterday sunday september 25th and uh, as we are in Nehemiah's chap Nehemiah chapters 4 and 5 as we looked at the the opposition that Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem faced as they were working on the walls they had external opposition and they had internal opposition that they were that they were facing. So we got a whole bunch of questions uh, that came in yesterday. We had a live Q&A Sunday had some really good questions around worldview, around ethical construction, uh, around uh theological and um really around theological hospitality that we would call it of can can two believers hold the same conviction, the same theological or the same ethical conviction yet um a- operate within different different streams of Maybe worship preference, or or even within within social social action, and um, and so we said yes, yes, you can do that, and we walked through that a little bit. But um, had some had some really great questions uh, coming from yesterday. Had a whole bunch more that we weren't able to take in the service. So today, our goal is to just walk through those walk walk through all the questions that came in yesterday, and then. Um, and then later this week, we'll record a second episode where we get caught up on some of the questions that have come in over the last couple weeks that we haven't had a chance to answer just because of all the ministry stuff that has been kicking off and, uh, and and starting here in in the fall. So let's start here with this with this first question. It says this: Is there a way to help people burst their own walls? I have talked to people that are in denial of their pain and their sin. Is there a way to help them see? Inward. This is a this is a great question, right? I mean, so one of the one of the themes that we've seen in the book of Nehemiah. I think we asked it a couple weeks ago for the first time. Asked it again, um, not not yesterday, but the week before that. And um, so uh, was it September 11th in the sermon there on Inspired on inspire Sunday, and then on the 18th, the sermon on the 18th. We asked the question that sometimes do we just need a Nehemiah? Uh, do we need a Nehemiah? do we need a Nehemiah figure in our lives where that can see clearly into what's going on in our lives in our experience and our hearts and our minds, the things that the things that we're facing, the things that we're walking through the things that we're struggling through, right? Maybe we've lost clarity and you you heard that in chapter two verse seventeen of Nehemiah where Nehemiah says, "Brothers, you know our city has been demolished, it's been desecrated, it's been broken down. Let's rebuild it, let's rebuild it, right." So Nehemiah puts himself into into their shoes. He puts himself into their pain. He empathizes with them, but he also he also gives them a, a solution. He leads them to uh, a reconciliation plan uh, for the city and ultimately for themselves. It's something we said yesterday in the sermon was that the larger work of Nehemiah has nothing to do with the rebuilding of the walls, the the structure of the city, all of that. It actually has to do with the reforming of the people, the the re uh, the reconstructing. Of the identity of the people, their their worldview, right—the uh, way that they see the world around them, the way that they see themselves, and uh, see the purpose of their lives, the point of their lives—all of that. And these are the people of God that are to be living out the purposes of God, and they and they they weren't really right. Um, that's why they faced internal opposition. Um, so so the question here, kind of coming back to this, right? So Nehemiah is 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 trying to you know. Uh, not just not just rebuild a city, a physical place, but he's also he's also leading the people into reform, and we're going to see that as we continue to walk through the book of Nehemiah more and more explicitly, right? But so, this question: How do I help somebody who they they seem maybe blind to it, indifferent to it, unaware of it, uh, of their own pain, their own sin? Um, is there is there a way to help them see inward? I think the the first step to this is just is just is listening right? Um, listening to someone over and over again and and asking the Lord to give you wisdom, to give you um, not just wisdom, but to specifically give you discernment, to be able to see into their life, into their heart, you know, what's really going on below the waterline. And, and I think often instead of telling somebody what's going on, you know, what you see, you say, hey, I see this in your life, you know, uh, sometimes that might work. Often I find it's better to ask questions, you know, um, or to reframe what you're hearing back in a question. So to say, I hear you saying this. Is that true? Is that accurate? Right? Um, and reframing it in a slightly different way for them. And sometimes, sometimes that that's helpful. Sometimes that brings that brings clarity. That that helps to uncover some of those things for people. Um, but I think it's it's in that context of relationship and it's in that context of relational trust that you can begin to ask those harder questions. And even make those harder statements, you know, like, "Hey, we've we've been talking about this for two months now, you know, and um, not why is it not changing? You know, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep going back to this pattern? I see you doing this pattern, you know. What we know it's not working. So, what could we do differently, right? So, you can be able to identify that. But that only happens in the context, the context of time. I think the other side of it too is that we have to recognize that while we love each other. And that we're called to bear each other's burdens. In you know, um, we we do that in the context of how much we can actually help. When we say when it says bear each other's burdens, it doesn't necessarily mean that we solve each other's problems. Because sometimes when we just solve problems, we actually create enablement. Right? We don't actually help people get better. We just enable brokenness to continue to happen. We have to be very careful about that. I think on the other side of it too, though, is that when we when we really talk about you know psychological help, you know, or repeated patterns of pain, repeated patterns of trauma, um, those often get fleshed out in our decision making process, and 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 so it often creates spirals or creates repeated patterns that we can't see personally. Others are able to see, um, but but as an as someone coming into someone else's life, right? You're trying to help someone. We have to recognize our limitations. There are just some things that people need they need trained psychological help, right? Or trained mental health help. They need a trained professional who's able to, to not just see the patterns or the actions that are, that are not helpful, right? But are actually able to walk somebody through the process of, of healing. And so sometimes the best way, the best way to help somebody is to help, is to help them get connected with a, with a professional. And, and in that, you know, if someone goes, no, I don't, I don't need that. I don't, I don't want that. I'm, Um, you know, I, I don't, it's just not, that's not what I'm, I'm here for or whatever, right? They're just, they're just not interested in going and you go, okay. All right. One, you have the right to choose that, you know, and that's, that's a hard, that's a hard thing. Uh, when you're walking with somebody in the midst of hardship and you're going, you know, I, 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 I love you. I want to see you be healthy is to recognize they have the right to choose or to not choose that. Secondly, sometimes there's just a barrier where they're, uh, you know, afraid or insecure or just unsure of what that experience will look like, and so there are there have been times in my life where I've offered to different people, you know, uh, and I said, "Hey, look, I'll I'll go with you for your first appointment. Would that be Would that be okay with you? Would that Would that help you feel more comfortable? You know, and there have been times where they said, "Nope," and I go, "Okay, so you really don't want to go." Okay, you know what? That's that's up to you. And there have been times where they said, "Yeah, uh, that would be great. Actually, that be that be wonderful. Would you do that? Yeah, I'll do that." You know, and so sometimes you have to think, you know, creatively around that. But more than anything, when I'm in interpersonal conversations, when I'm just walking with somebody and trying to help them, and I can, maybe I, maybe God's given me insight to see something in their life. And, uh, and I'm that spiritual, spiritual brother, um, you know, for them, walking alongside of them with them in those things. I find that the process of asking questions is far more helpful in uncovering. Uh, the things that they can't see for themselves, right? It's it's that Nehemiah figure in our lives, you know, uh, brothers, sisters. Our walls are broken down. Um, l- look look at the state that we're in. Let's let's go and rebuild it, you know. Um, so I find questions are are probably the most helpful vehicle for um, for un- for uncovering that. So that's a great question. I love and I love the heart, the care that is in that is in that in that question. The second, the next question comes. Um, really, is uh, we we had a a series of series of questions here from this person, and um, that one of their questions came up. We answered it live in the service yesterday. What are some rhythms of prayer that uh, that can you know help me uh, in in life's challenging moments? We talked about taking you know one minute pauses throughout the day. I use a I use an app on my phone, literally called the One Minute Pause, that helps to. Create a prayerful mindfulness for me, right? Literally, my phone goes off, and I go, "Okay, I got to go pray now," <laughs> you know. And they're just short bursts of prayer, uh, short seasons of prayer throughout my day, but actually creates a or fosters a prayerful awareness for me throughout the entirety of my day. Uh, Pastor Mark shared, you know, about praying the Psalms yesterday in the in the service, and uh, we, we, you know, even when we don't know what to pray, we can pray we can pray Scripture and uh, and and even how God's Spirit speaks to us through that and how it, you know, we we join in God in communion through that process. Or just following things like a, a prayer model, like Acts, Acts prayer model, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication often helps me to not be distracted in my prayer life, right? So prayer is a wonderful thing and it can be, it can be, it can be really hard to engage in due to life's challenging circumstances. But those are some things that I have found that are helpful to, um, you know, cut through the clutter of the challenge, and then and then be present to God in prayer. Um, I think here's one of the other. Here's uh, one other question that came in from this person: said, so, "Do you have any contemporary examples of a perceived problem that is reshaped by God's perspective?" Now, um, I, I I guess I, I wonder what when they say uh, any contemporary examples of a perceived problem that is reshaped. Uh, by God's perspective, um, is that we, you know, if, if it's a, is it a problem that's solved or met um, by God's people who have been reshaped by God's perspective? Um, you know, r- most recently, actually, um, there's a guy named Pastor Eugene Cho, and with his organization, they actually advocate they advocate for um, the the vulnerable, the needy, uh, those who have are facing food insecurity. Uh, both in our country and throughout the world, and most recently uh, through his organization and with bipartisan support uh, in the U.S. government, there was uh, funding that was secured for um, a significant number of years to provide uh, food security to help uh, alleviate that, right? And, And, you know, and so in that situation, here's a guy who has been reshaped by God's perspective, right? His heart is for uh, he knows that we are to be caring for the vulnerable, the poor, the needy in our midst, and um, and so going going to do action to that, going to apply uh, political solutions and political resources, leveraging political resources uh, to to work work through that. So I think I think there's all kinds of different things that happen uh, around our in our modern our modern modern context. Um, you, you can look at I mean even the, the pro life movement and and the rates of Christians that are involved in adoption and in foster care, versus non Christians that are involved in those in those spaces, and it tends to be like a like a three to one uh, ratio of Christians, people of of Christian faith, um, and not just not just evangelical denominations, but across across what we'd say Orthodox Christianity, um, uh, people that take you know the take Jesus <laughs> as Savior and the Bible seriously, those kind of things. Um, across denominational lines though you know they tend to be involved in in the adoption and foster care spaces at around a three to one ratio right and uh, and so again God's heart for children God's heart for life god's heart for family and uh, and you see that having reshaped people's perspectives and then it comes out in their priorities of supporting that work and and engaging in those in those in those spaces so I think there's 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 lots of different examples, and you can even you can even go back into uh, more recent history and the abolitionist movement of the slave trade, uh, the modern slave trade. Um, you have you have the abolitionist movement is is, is a primarily Christian Christian movement. Um, even today, some of the. The greatest organizations that are working to end modern slavery, which um, slavery didn't end at the Emancipation Proclamation, at least in the American West, um, slavery still plagues uh, the globe. It's one of the it's one of the most profitable industries around the world currently, and even in the U.S., the, we call it human trafficking now. Uh, we don't tend to call it slavery, but human trafficking is human slavery, and um, and it's a significant issue, especially facing, facing, um, migrants that are trying to get into, into our country. It's, it's one of the reasons that, um, immigration policy is so important. Now, again, we're not talking about what immigration policy to put in place, but, um, one of the distinct challenges that faces, uh, in this, in the space of immigration is that of, uh, the, the poor, the, the weak, the vulnerable being taken advantage of, right? And so different Christians uh, see it in different ways of how to apply sovereign policy into that. We're not we're not trying to dive into that here on this podcast, but within that space of anti-human trafficking, um, some of the largest, most significant uh, organizations are Christian. You've got A21 that is working in that space, uh, IJM, International Justice Mission, that is working in that space, and they're doing significant work. Again, these are people... That have been re- reshaped by God's perspective, that are then working for uh, the good in, good in this world, right? So there's there's lots of lots of different examples there, of, of that. I hope I hope that is answering that question uh, accurately. Another question comes in uh, from this person says, "What habits or disciplines can help us reshape our worldview?" Now, that's a great question. Um, you know, as we said yesterday, how do we build a worldview? Well, we have to start with an authority. Uh, and, and a worldview answers the essential questions of life. It answers the questions of like, what is, what is really real? You know, what is the nature of reality? What is the nature of human being uh, or be of a human being? Uh, what happens after death? Is this life all that there is, right? Yeah, so, you know, when you think of it as a distinctly Christian worldview, what is our authority? Well, our ultimate authority is going to be the, the, word, the, the Word of God. Why? Because we believe that it was revealed by God. It's special revelation for our good that we would know God and walk with God, right? And so, um, so when you think about it, every worldview needs a source, a foundational source of authority. And for the Christian, um, the foundational source of authority has to be the scriptures, right? And so, so we talk about, well, what's a, what's a discipline or a habit uh, that helps to reshape our worldview? I think, you know, the first discipline that we need to cultivate is that of, of regular Bible reading, learning to read the scriptures, learning to chew on the scriptures. You know, in, the, in Acts chapter 17, we met the Bereans as we walked through the book of Acts last year. And what did the Bereans do? They they were met by Paul. They were Paul taught them that he, you know, he shared with them the gospel. They were this God fearing group that had studied the Old Testament scriptures because in Acts that's all that they had. They didn't have the New Testament yet. The New Testament was being written during that early church age. Um, that first by by sixty two A D the 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 New Testament is written and. Um, and so we're, you know, so they're in that, they're in that period. But, but what do the Breans do? They hear, they receive Paul, they hear his teaching of the gospel and they take a moment and they literally go back and they, they read, they, they compare what Paul is teaching against what they know to be true from the old Testament. And what do they find? Well, this guy named Jesus that Paul is telling them about, he is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the old Testament. God said he'd bring Messiah and, and as Paul is sharing with them about Jesus of Nazareth, they go, he is Messiah, right? But they compared it against what they knew to be true, against their, the source of authority. And so for, for us as Christians, that, that really is what we're doing in, in worldview construction and in worldview evaluation and in worldview refinement. Uh, we have to continually compare things back against a source of authority, and that source of authority is the scriptures. Um, so a uh, habit, uh, an essential habit to worldview construction is it's just regular Bible reading, learning to read the Scriptures. David David Helm. If you're looking for a a book on how to read the Bible, David Helm has a book called One to One Bible Reading. It's a great book on how to how to have a uh, how to literally do one on one. You know, you and another person reading the Bible together, right? Ironing, sharpening iron, kind of kind of work there. Another another great book of learning how to read the Bible is um, a book called "How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth." Can't remember the authors off the top of my head right now, um, but "How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth" is another really good book on just foundational uh, Bible reading. Right, how to read the Bible and understand what God has for you in it. Right, um, I think another another habit another habit uh, for worldview construction has to go within that practicing that of humility and practicing uh, that of evaluation and education, right? So this is this ongoing process that we're always going to be engaging in. I think what we need there is then cultivating the habit of community and specifically being within community that is going to challenge us, not just agree with us so that we get into echo chambers on these topics, but in community that's going to challenge us. So if there is one habit uh, that I would say is absolutely essential to worldview construction, uh, it is that of, of, of regular Bible reading And um, because every worldview needs a source of authority. Right? Uh, continuing on the question of, um, of worldview, this is a question we answered live in the service yesterday. What resources are available to help construct a worldview at Christ Community? And we've got things like Right Now Media. If you go on our website to the resources tab on the website, you can sign up for Right Now Media. There's all kinds of different studies uh, on Right Now Media that are apologetics and worldview um, oriented, right? Uh, Sean McDowell is, is a writer, speaker, thinker that is active in the worldview uh, space. He often writes with. J. Warner Wallace um, and uh, Lee Strobel is another, another resource that would be available. There's, there's, those are some, some authors, thinkers, theologians that are on Right Now Media uh, that are helpful in the worldview space. Our student ministry department has resource uh, or resources through uh, an organization called Axis, A-X-I-S. You can actually go to their website, axis.org, axis.org, and you can sign up for their free weekly newsletter, which uh, just helps to engage in the spaces of culture and the gospel. Uh, and particularly facing issue uh, around issues that our students, our teenagers are facing. But our, our youth ministry department has access to their to their deeper bench of resources and so you can you can send a, an email to Carl or Mariah. Um, you can you can get their emails off of our staff web, website or staff webpage on our website. And, and if there's a particular issue that you're facing or a particular issue that your student is facing and you want to have some clarity, you want to have some help in understanding and digesting that, that's it. They're, they're a great, they're a great resource there for that. Um, another guy that I mentioned yesterday in the service was a guy named, uh, William Lane Craig, uh, William Lane Craig. And, um, and if you just Google him, his, his website will come up and he's got great resources that are free and available on his, on his website, um, podcasts and videos of debates that he's put on. And, and engaged in in the area of worldview and apologetics, and so there's there's lots of different um, lots of different resources out there, but but primarily from our church or through our church, um, you've got right now media, and then you've got access to access uh, through our student ministry department. And those are, those those are going to give you some great resources to just to just start engaging in this space of of worldview uh, and worldview construction. All right, so this next question that comes in is on, uh, maybe the lines of what we'd say in, in worldview is that of ethical construction. So it says this, Nehemiah chapter five says, let us stop this taking of interest. It seems to be a warning about lending money at interest. Yet today we all do this a great deal. Indeed, it might be that our economic system is based on it. Have we today ignored an important biblical warning here? This is a great question, right? And it's actually one that has, Come up in different spaces and in different uh, speer- spheres of of social action and social engagement and social responsibility. Uh, when we when we look at uh, particularly around the issue of predatory lending, I think I think we can all look at, at 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 predatory lending, right? Lending where it is designed to take advantage of people who are in vulnerable situations, and we go, that is not right, right? You think of the the classic payday loan situation, right? Somebody who is in a vulnerable position, they need cash now to pay a bill. They've got a paycheck coming, but they don't have the money in their bank account. So they'll go take a payday loan, right? They'll get an advance on that loan. But then then the advance on the loan has things like 30% interest or whatever, right? These just exorbitantly high interest rates, but they're in such a vulnerable position uh, that, uh, that, that a traditional institution like a bank wouldn't extend them a line of credit so they have to go to these places that will extend them those lines of credit but at ridiculous you know rates and exorbitant rates and really is what we call predatory lending right they're taking advantage of somebody in a vulnerable situation i think we can all agree that that kind of work that kind of economic lending is is wrong and it's 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 what Nehemiah is Partly addressing here, uh, but the unique thing is that um, in in the Old Testament, God doesn't actually prohibit lending, and He doesn't actually prohibit lending that uh, that uh, takes an in interest. Um, he doesn't even He doesn't even prohibit uh, what we would say, um, you know. In, in Nehemiah, there was saying, you know, we have to sell our children into into slavery, this debt slavery um, action that was that was common in, in the ancient Near East and in ancient antiquity. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, God doesn't actually prohibit that. He gives it boundaries, and he gives it distinctly different boundaries than uh, than what would have happened in other prevailing cultures. And and so so it's 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 one of these things that you know in the Old Testament uh, that we read this and we go, oh, this is very uncomfortable. Right? It's very uncomfortable for us as a modern audience because well, we have different economic opportunities and different economic structures that are around us and support us that would really make those practices absolutely not needed at this point in time right um but what god does is when he puts it in deuteronomy chapter 21 specifically around this idea of debt slavery and and what he's talking about is from a hebrew to a hebrew right within the culture of Israel, um, there, you know, they, he said, if if you're going to do this, right, there is a better way to do this, to engage in this in this social practice of debt slavery, and and a lot of it is around the construction of protecting the most vulnerable. And protecting those who are yeah, who are who are weak and um, you know economically or socially in need, right? And uh, and so uniquely in, in chapter twenty one in Deuteronomy chapter twenty one, he actually says, "Hey, you know what? Um, you can only engage in in, in retaining somebody f- uh, under a under a debt slavery policy or debt slavery practice for six years. In the seventh year, they're going to be restored." Right, so it's not even this like limitless catching generations upon generations within within enslavement. There's this uh, there's this reality that God says, "Hey, if you're going to do this, um, you know what? Upon year seven, uh, that person is is set free. Okay, and uh, and the debt is covered, and uh, they're restored back to their position and uh, all of it. Right? Um, there's this full and total restoration." And he also has makes makes a provision uh, in Deuteronomy chapter twenty one. He says, "Well, but if the if the slave regards his master uh, it, with love, right? He wants he doesn't want to be set free. Well, then then there's then there's a a, 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 a ceremony, right? A sacred bond that is then made between." Uh, the one who is indebted to the master, right? Uh, but even in that, there are these protections there that go. Uh, that person is not to be taken advantage of. That person is to be cared for, is to be protected. All of those kind of things, um, and so, uh, it, and all of this comes under the context of a of a, of a willingness to uh, engage in those in those spaces, in those spheres. Now, all of this, I have to acknowledge, right? We have to acknowledge it's very uncomfortable for us uh, to to have this conversation, right? Part of it is because of our the history of our country and how uh, we, as a, as a United States um, in the West, engaged in practices of slavery, which were very different than what Um, than what were practiced in the Old Testament, in part, and especially, exceptionally different than what God said. If you're going to do this, this isn't the ideal, this isn't the best, this isn't a God, you know, this isn't a prescription of how life should be, but if you're going to engage in this, in this practice, this is how you do it in a way that retains dignity for those, uh, dignity and, and, and protection for those that are vulnerable, right? And so, so that's, that's that's a really interesting, um, th- you know, just a very a very a very, a very multi layered conversation within the Old Testament uh, of, of that practice. And so we see Nehemiah. He goes, "Hey, we're going to stop collecting interest." Does he? Is that a prescription for all time? Well, no, it's not. It's a prescription for this situation, um, because what they're doing is that they're actually they're actually they're extorting one another. They're manipulating one another. They're engaging in predatory lending practices uh, within each other, right? Within the house of Israel, the people of God are acting are acting like those the cultures uh, that, that had taken them into captivity, and not as the people of God uniquely as well. Um, What we also see in Nehemiah chapter 5 is that not only were they selling their children into slavery to cover their debts, but they were actually selling their daughters and their sons to foreigners, right? Um, Out of the house of God, out of the people of God, and in Deuteronomy chapter 21, God explicitly prohibits that. Why? Why? because if you're going to engage in this <laughs> debt slavery practice he said you're only going to do it within the people of God within the house of God why because those people are going to have God's values or they should have God's values and and so they should then practice these uh, these practices of uh, re- literally redemption it was literally called redeeming and and so God puts these these policies of redemption into this practice not because I, I not because God doesn't can, you know, say, hey, this is the best way to live. But because he said, if you're going to do this, there are going to be practices of redemption that are going to look distinctly different and practices of treatment that are going to look distinctly different than the prevailing culture around you to show that there is a better way to live. There's a better way to care for those that are um, economically vulnerable, right? The problem again in Nehemiah here is that uh, that that the people in Jerusalem were actually violating and ignoring those policies and practices of redemption. So Nehemiah comes in and he said, "Hey, we you've 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 blown it. You've ignored God's commands. Um, I get it. You know what? The famine is real. The struggle is real. The problems are real. You're trying to just make ends meet. I get it. We we need to We need to we need to completely." Um, revamp the system here, and uh, we need to get back to what God has for us. And so, so uh, are we ignoring a biblical warning that we shouldn't lend uh, with interest? Um, no, because there's actually there's actually instructions throughout the scriptures about how to go about lending practices with interest, right? Um, but what the scriptures continue, I think, to teach clearly uh, is that we need to be aware of our practices that are putting the most vulnerable in in more difficult positions, right? And so um, so what we see in Nehemiah 5 clearly is the practice of predatory lending, and Nehemiah says no more to that, right? But Nehemiah says no more to that because God has already said no more to predatory lending. Like, those things should not happen, right? So I think we can all agree uh, to say, yep, um, predatory lending, absolutely not. Uh, regular lending, you know what, we can have a conversation around maybe what are the best policies or practices uh, for a country or for society in those spaces and those spheres. And we're going we're gonna to have different opinions on that kind of thing. Uh, but what the scriptures are clear about here ethically is that uh, we need to be very careful to not take advantage of those that are in a vulnerable situation economically. Um, so I love, love that question, right? Again, it's, it's this rubber meets the road. You know, how does, how do my, how do my, how do the scriptures inform my worldview? How do my, how does the, my worldview then inform my life and my actions? Um, next, next question comes in and says, what is the difference between following our passions and pursuing our God given talents? Right? So often we talk about disordered desires or passions of the flesh and, um, and you know what, we contrast it sometimes to, yeah, to what, how God has given us talents, unique talents and abilities to then go and live out. I, I think, I think the, 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 main line here between a pursuing a, a passion, a passion of the flesh, um, and a talent is, is who is, who is the object of glorification? Is it for my glory or is it for God's glory? If I'm living out my talents and we can even, maybe again, we could, uh, modernly substitute the word passion in there, right? I've got a passion for, let's say cycling, and God has given me the ability, uh, to go and be successful at cycling, right? Um, who was the, I can't remember who the, the, the classic runner, um, was who said, you know, I feel, I feel God when I run, right? I feel the presence of God when I run. Um, Right. There's a there's a talent there's a passion there, um, but it's about God's glory, right? And I think that's that's always a line that we need to we need to walk through here and try to figure out of who is who is the object of the glory is it me, uh, or is it God? And and no matter what we're doing, if it's if it's if we are if we are making ourselves the object of the glory, then then we need to have a heart check on that. Uh, because God should always be the object of, of, of glory, right? Because he's the one who's wired us. He's the one who's given us that ability, right? Um, and so, uh, or that talent, you know, he's placed that in us. And so we want to give him praise for that. We want to d- direct that praise back to him. Um, another another question on worldview said, can two Christians have distinctly different worldviews yet both still have a worldview that is distinctly Christian? What if those worldviews don't seem to align? Uh, just as we talked about here with the, with the predatory lending, we talked about this question specifically in the service live yesterday. Um, Yes, we can have distinctly Christian worldviews and disagree on solutions, right, or disagree on policies, um, social policies. Uh, We can say, you know what, I think this is the most advantageous solution uh, to that ethical conviction, Um, you know. And we can, we can disagree on those, on those things, right? How to get that stuff done, uh, we can disagree on. Now, when we split worldview, we often split into doctrine and theo, doctrinal theo, theological issues and ethical moral issues, right? Um, so we got to be clear about what we're talking about here. So um, can you have a distinctly Christian worldview and disagree about minor points of theology? Yes, absolutely. Uh, can you have a distinctly Christian worldview and disagree about major points of theology? No, right? You cannot, right? Um yeah, The example we used yesterday, baptized babies, baptized believers. Can you disagree on that and still be distinctly Christian? Absolutely, right? The church has disagreed on that and debated that for 2,000 years. Can you disagree on the divinity and nature of Jesus? Uh, and still be distinctly Christian? Absolutely not. That is a essential that you have to agree upon in order to be a what we'd say orthodox Christian, and, and and that's something that the church has agreed upon for all time in all places. It's it's it is a distinct marker theologically about who we are as a faith group um, that G, the 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 humanity and that Jesus is fully God and fully man that He is. Um, that he's the author and creator of all things. He existed before all things, right? Um, as Paul says in, in Colossians, as John says in chapter one, uh, it's one of the very first questions that's landed at the Council of Nicaea and in 325. Um, you know. So, so there are certain things, certain doctrinal things that you go, nope, you cannot vary on those things and still be distinctly Christian. There are lots of secondary and tertiary, second and third things that we go, yeah, there's room for liberty and charity, in that, right? Um, when it comes to moral or ethical things, we said it this way, right? We can have the same moral conviction, you know, um, murder is murder, um, how to punish murderers though. Right. That's a, that, that, that there's room for debate in that, um, that we are to protect, we are to protect the weak and the vulnerable. Even as we talk about with, with, um, you know, predatory lending practices, we can, we can debate what are the best practices, Uh, For lending within a healthy society, knowing that God does not want us to take advantage of people, right? So we have the ethical conviction that we're not to take advantage of people, but we can debate when there can be room for difference on, well, what are the best ways um, to make sure that we're not taking advantage of people in, or the best policies to not take advantage of people in the space of? Economic lending, right? Because we know that we need to, we need lending for economic development and for leveraging of capital, um, and so, um, so we we know that we need this. But how do we do it in the best way possible? And, we, and there's room for disagreement um, in those in those spaces, right? Where we don't disagree is that you, you go, well, I don't think God really doesn't want us to take advantage of people. I think He's okay if we do take advantage of people. Well, no, no, that's we violated now an ethical uh, conviction of the scriptures, right? Um, so yeah, so I think it's, and this is, this is difficult work. This is difficult work because so often sometimes we say things or we use the same words, but with different dictionaries. And so we have to understand, are we saying the same things and, um, are we saying the same things? Are we defining them the same way? And, uh, and it's just sometimes, you know, when you're in those conversations, they're uncomfortable, they're difficult because you're bringing different perspectives to it, but we have to operate in charity and, and really giving each other the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise. Um, in that in that space of of uh, interacting with one another, you know, and and it's particularly in with the the prevailing culture around us, this question comes up and said, you know, how do we identify the difference between Christian opposition and jerk opposition? This is a great question. It was a question we raised in the sermon yesterday. Is it is it my theology that's making me face opposition, or is it my methodology, right? And um, and and so. Um, you know, this is actually a question we wrestled with in my, my Connect group uh, on Sunday night. You know, we talked about this. How do we do this? How do we engage in spaces um, with that is, we're both polite, but we're also not, you know, accommodating, you know, or, um, and, and even accommodating is not, not necessarily a great word, um, but we are enabling disorder desires. We're enabling sinful things, right? We're enabling the things that God said, hey, this isn't good. We don't want to walk in that way. But I, I think more than anything, when we talk about, you know, um, is it my theology or my methodology? Is it because I'm holding to Christian conviction? or is it because I've been kind of a jerk, right? I think we have to we have to ask the question of, uh, did that rub them the wrong way because I presented a um, you know, a, a, a perspective that doesn't agree with them? or is it because I, the way that I spoke to them? Right? Um, my voice was raised. I was impatient. I talked over them. My body language communicated that I did not care for them, right? Um, or I engaged in a way that I knew would be antagonistic. To them, you know, to to this audience, um, and so I really didn't think through how to appeal to them. I knew that the topic was already going to be difficult, but I didn't think through how to appeal to them in a way that would be um, considered respectful, right? And that this isn't talking about the the no win situations that we can get caught in. This is talking about the everyday spheres of of our of our lives and our relationships. And and again what we've seen in Nehemiah is that he he continues to come back to this sort of strategic awareness, situational awareness, we might call it emotional intelligence. Of what's going on, right? He makes his appeal to Artaxerxes um, in chapter two. He waits till a moment when uh, when the king is is really is really ready. He's feeling magnanimous. He's feeling generous. Uh, the note that Nehemiah brings to us that the king and the queen were together this this probably indicates that it was a private situation, right? It wasn't in the hall in front of everybody. <laughs> you know, he's not putting the king on the spot. Um, he's also worked to build the king's trust in that, right? So he's, he's demonstrated that he's faithful, he's dependable, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's a, a regularly uh, well-performing, um, you know, uh, employee in the king's, in the king's ranks. And so he waits to, to an opportune, uh, wise, uh, strategic moment uh, to make his appeal, uh, then when he goes to Jerusalem he surveys primarily at night he the, the the largest work that he does is at night why because he knows that there's people that are opposed uh, to his work so he doesn't want to rile them up more than he needs to uh, even even with the people when he responds to the people to their internal and er, the external internal and external opposition uh, he doesn't bemean them, berate them. He doesn't belittle them. He's not like, "Hey, you know what? Uh, suck it up, Buttercup. You know, let's get going." Um, he hears them. He takes the threats, re, you know, seriously. He acknowledges the fears, um, and so he's very, he's very aware of how he's of how he's leading. And I think, I think those are the things that we need to, we need to just be very careful of. Right? Is it is it what I believe or is it how I'm um, I'm uh, publicizing? my belief. And there will be situations where you go, you know what, this is just going to be a no win situation. No matter how I present it, I know that I'm going to face opposition. I know that people are going to say, I'm a, I'm a jerk, I'm this, I'm that. Uh, but it's what Peter says in second or in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12. He says, live such good lives, right? Um, live in such a way that demonstrates that you're respectable, honorable, patient, kind, all of those things, the fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians live those things out. And, uh, and that's, I think that's how we can begin to evaluate and sort through, uh, some of these, some of this difference between is it, is it my theology or is it my methodology? Um, and so I think the more that we become aware of that, the more that we come going before we go into a situation, we say, how God, you know, we, we ask the question, how should I say this? How should I present this in a way that would be winsome and thoughtful to my audience? I think we'll find that, that we're actually gonna be able to engage in conversations more and more in those, in those difficult spheres more and more, um, and that doesn't mean it's gonna be easy and that doesn't mean that people are gonna agree with us. Sometimes we think that uh, what it means to, to have good conversation is that we end up in a place of um, unified agreement and that just is not always the case, right? Um, so I think that's how we have to, we have to work through identifying uh, is it my theology or is it my methodology, Right uh, here, our, our last question that came in yesterday comes in this way. It's a, it's a, it's an eschatological question. So a question about maybe the end times or the current age that we are living in in the kingdom of God. It said, if we are sojourners, why do some think we are currently establishing the kingdom of God? Or as sojourners and exiles, do we work to establish the church, uh, looking forward to the kingdom? Like when Jesus prays, "Your kingdom come, your will be done." Is he praying uh, that the kingdom uh, will appear soon? All right, this is a great question. Um, and so I'm, I'm assuming here as I read the question um, that it's coming asking about the what would be termed as the amillennial eschatological position. That is uh, a position of the end times that believes that we are in the millennial reign of Christ now. In the church age is the millennial reign of Christ. We're building the kingdom now now. Um, Right, and for my all-millennial friends, that's just a, a really short recap of the position. So, um, you know, don't don't uh, don't don't at me here of uh, <laughs> right of the the particular nuances of the all-millennial position. Um, I, I would say, you know, for for me, um, uh, my convictions, my understanding, my reading of scripture, um, historically, the free church has said, you know, uh, held a premillennial uh, eschatological position, and that there will be a millennial reign of Christ. I tend to be in that camp um, uh, just from the reading of Revelation and Revelation chapter 20 particularly. Um, you know, and so so I think there there's some yeah some unique conversations we can have around how we interpret that unique passage. Um, but I think more than that, within the theme or the spheres of covenant theology, um, covenant theology tends to see, um, the our action of living the normal Christian life as building kingdom in part here now as we long for it to be established in full in the age to come that's why we say uh, in in part now uh, you know um, we experience it now in part and uh, and we long for it right uh, but not in, in um, now in part, but not in whole, you know, now and not yet. Right. That was the phrase we used yesterday in the sermon was now and not yet. Um, and so that's why we say it that way is that I think, you know, yes, we are experiencing it in part, but we know that what is clear in scriptures from the scriptures is that in the age to come, we will experience something now in part, but we will experience it ultimately in full in the age to come. And so, um, so yeah, so as sojourners, um, we are establishing the kingdom in part because the kingdom is being established in us, and as we share the gospel, and as the gospel redeems lives, as Jesus makes a difference in other people's lives, the kingdom is growing, but we we know that the kingdom will not be fully established until Jesus comes back, right? Right. Um, And so, so then, yeah, or as sojourners and exiles, do we work to establish the church looking forward to the kingdom? I think, I think, yes, I think that is the, probably the more, the more clear line of the scriptures. And even as you engage in, uh, with, with different people who hold a non-millennial view, you'll, you'll, you'll see that there's, there's great nuance even within that perspective of, of what it means to build the kingdom or, or when the kingdom will become fully, um, fully established or how the kingdom will become fully established. And so, um, so yeah, so we are, we're sojourners. (laughs) We don't Peter, um, the author to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 uh, reminds us we don't belong to this age. Paul reminds us we don't belong to this age. Uh, We have been uh, now set apart. We have been made new. We are now a Royal priesthood. We are now in the family of God. And so our perspectives and everything is distinctly different, right? We are sojourners. We are foreigners. We are exiles in this age. Longing for the age to come, yet miraculously and graciously, we get to experience um, taste, foretaste of the age to come now in part while we long for it in whole. Uh, when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes back. So love, love these questions, love engaging um, around them and love the dialogue that we get to have around the scripture. So thanks for hanging in here with a longer episode today. We had lots of great questions that came in from our live Q and A yesterday as we were in Nehemiah chapters four and five. We'll catch you next Sunday.